Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram and Travis Linville in Chicago. Hello Andrew. Hi Simon. And hello Travis. Hello Simon. Right, first of all, I just want to say thank you to Bill Schwab uh, for being our guest on our last show. Um, Now normally I'd say that was like two weeks ago but it was longer than that and I think we just need to issue a formal apology for Andrew and I not being able to actually get any time together at the same time as a guest as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a while since we since we last spoke mm. and uh, lasted the podcast. So uh, hopefully next time it won't be quite so long. Maybe. <laughs> but who knows? So, yeah, that's 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 how it goes. I mean, we try to set ourselves up for twenty shows a year, so uh, we've we've already lost one of those now. So uh, um, <laughs> we'll see where where we get up to by the end of it. Um, okay, so let's uh, move things straight on to what have you been getting up to, Andrew? Well, I've been getting very excited in 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 amongst feeling very poorly, but don't mind me. I'll soldier through this recording. But I've been getting very excited about our event that we're holding in may so following on from the wonderful bill schwab who you mentioned we decided uh, to launch our own well in fact we decided we talked about it before then but it kind of came into focus after we'd spoken to bill schwab uh, we announced if you go to the facebook uh, group the large format photography facebook group you will see at the very top of the page the announcement of the lfpp 2020 gathering in the forest so that kind of suggests there's going to be more of these things. Well, let's just wait and see if anyone turns up to this one first. So folks listening, tell your friends, uh, come along yourselves. If you've never camped, now's your time to learn how to camp. Meredith Wilson has no excuse. She claims to be a hardy Australian outback girl, but apparently has never been camping. Friday 29th of May to Sunday 31st of May for UK listeners, that's not the bank holiday. That's the weekend after. Yes, so I'm. We got it wrong last time, didn't no, we? No, you did. I'm sure I was completely <laughs> correct. So I'm going to be there on the Friday. Uh, Julie and I will be travelling down with uh, Stella, the Sterling Caravan, and we'll be there for lunchtime-ish, early afternoon. I guess Steve Segersby is coming down on the Friday, and there's probably half a dozen others. The Sandeha Lynch who's been on the show, who's going to be there. Um, someone suggested we need to have s'mores and ghost stories, but I didn't know what they were, so I disregarded what uh, what he said. So Toby Vanderveld said, ooh, so I'm not sure that Toby's coming. Jeremy North is coming. Yeah, uh, not, not 100%. I, I was chatting to, I saw Jeremy at the weekend, okay. and, and I, I'm not entirely sure if he's camping or whether he's just going to head over on the, the Saturday I, night. I can imagine he'll find a hotel accommodation somewhere and just drive up in his open top Bentley with his cravat <laughs> on. <laughs> well, he, he doesn't. He doesn't live too too far away from there. Actually, it's just it's just worth pointing out. I mean, you've you've given the dates there uh, mm. from from the Friday to the Sunday. Mm. Um, the main event, uh, the gala evening, um, <laughs> is uh, the, the the Saturday night. Um, so if you if you go before then it's it's more about you know just ca- catching up with and, and, and chatting and uh, yeah. and getting out there and taking some pictures. Um, yeah. But they as far as the actual gathering 
is concerned the official gathering is on the on the saturday night and you don't have to have a tent if you're in the vague vicinity you can just um, have a sleeping bag well yeah there's there's, there's that and uh, but you can always just uh, uh, come on over i think graham uh, jago the sunday 16 podcast has indicated that he might uh, come along although it, it, i don't think right. he fancies staying in the tent but uh, i think he might just pop along for the evening excellent well um it's worth also pointing out that because in most families there's probably someone who's really into photography and their partner may not be quite so interested so you know we're not going to be geeking out well not unless you really want to all day long and all together as a big group you know people can do what they want if 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 folks want to go off together they can do or not you know if you just want to go off and visit a museum or go canoeing down the river why then that's okay. I think the idea is that we come together in the evening for a bit of geekery and large format chat. And and we hope that some of the more learned folks are going to uh, give us a bit of a talk. And so we're very pleased to have Steve Segersby with us. And I'm sure he's got um, a lot to say about what he's been up to with his platinum printing. And of course, Dave Shrimpton is going to be there. And Dave uh, who does lots of wet plate photography, amongst other stuff, is bringing some kind of well, I want to call it a wet plate trailer, you know, but I don't think it's that grand. I'm not sure what it is he's bringing, but some something to enable him to coat his plates or his glass plates or his aluminium plates or whatever he's using out in the field. Pretty much like the old American settlers out west with their wagons. And um, Travis, do you have a wagon to coat your glass plates in or your uh, metal plates? I don't. Uh, typically, when I, I go on location, I'm I'm just kind of shoving everything in the back of my my car and and um, and hoping it all is still together by the time I, I get to my destination. But uh, but no wagon of sorts. So what do you what sort of what are you using at the moment? Because I'm because with this process and you're having to coat and sensitize your plates pretty much close to the time when you expose the image, aren't you? Right. And it's um, the dark box that I use gone through several versions. So the the first was simply a cardboard box. Um, it just, I'd usually spray paint the inside black and, and cut out one side. On, on certain boxes, I would cut a, a window out and cover it with some sort of ruby glass or, or something that would prevent exposure. Uh, on occasion, I would just keep the box enclosed. And then while I was inside it, I would have a battery powered light, some sort of red light or red LED as a way to see what I was doing in there. And, and after I got tired of the cardboard box, I noticed that there were some people that were converting old, um, a lot of times like army suitcases, uh, bigger suitcases, bigger carrying trunks, and they would convert those into mobile dark rooms. And I thought that aesthetic paired well with the the process. And so I did a version of that and it, it was fine. It was a little cramped and, um, and while it was functional, it, I was looking for an easier solution. And so what I currently use is PVC pipe, just that you would get at the hardware store. Um, and I assemble a, a basic skeleton for a box and then drape fabric over it. It all packs down quite easily and um, is resistant to the chemicals and, and has been a, a better solution for me. Hmm. So you, you don't have – have you thought about maybe, you know, like Brendan Barry – getting a, a mobile darkroom or a caravan or a, a, some kind of RV to travel around in, then you can just do it all in one go, can't you? You can travel and have your darkroom. 
That is, yeah, I, I've, I've thought about that. It, it does save a lot of setup because anywhere I go, the, the setup takes quite a bit of time just to get it up and running on location. And so, mm-hmm. you know, having a, a traveling darkroom would certainly help. I'd say with the frequency that I do that, um, um, I think it would go unused a lot because I'm working majority time out of a various studios. And also the nice thing about the, um, the current configuration I have is that it's very customizable. So I, I've set it up in hotel bathrooms and, you know, um, you know, just about anywhere I can customize it and reconfigure the PVC box, you know, to a different size, different dimensions to fit in smaller spaces or larger spaces. And so that's been the biggest benefit to me, even though it has a little bit less of the kind of flash and aesthetic that, that might pair with this process. It's been, um, it's been easy to adapt to a lot of different situations. I'm just, just wondering if you can get some kind of uh, cam- canvas or something just to go over the top of it, uh, like a like one of those uh, like that you get covered, like a covered wagon uh, back in the day. Oh, right. Yeah, it's. I think the one thing that we kind of struggle with anywhere on location, particularly if it's outside, is definitely wanting to be able to stop the light, but then also uh, the fumes are quite strong, so you need to have some sort of ventilation or air it out frequently. And also, um, if it's warm at all, the the heat can be quite uncomfortable when you're under there, and the heat also can affect the behavior of your chemicals substantially. Yeah, your your the film sweats that you get are, are going to be quite quite significantly different and more right. dangerous than the than the ones that most people are used to with uh, you know uh, trying to get things onto a Patterson tank and things like that. But some of the the results that I've had. Uh, in less than ideal conditions, I've I've loved it. It's not been anything that I would have done on purpose, but when you see maybe the, the plates drying out quicker than you would like or the higher temperatures affecting the performance of your collodion uh, or your silver bath, you get results and you get artifacts on the plate that sometimes are, depending on your preference, can be quite attractive. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, that was when we had um, Joseph Brunzius on the show um, who who uh, we 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 talked about with the collodion uh, um, wet plates and and such and when we went to uh, select the artwork uh, because the idea is we would we would pick a a shot that works with the uh, our logo in in a square format and things and the the shot that I chose. Uh, off his site was one that he said oh you picked that one it's it wasn't it, as in, it wasn't a technically uh from a development point of view it wasn't a technically uh it wasn't technically technically as good as he can achieve um so it, it had these uh i'm going to forward to a battle uh, artifacts it had these artifacts on it which i found particularly attractive but um the um the 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 pro the professional in uh and joseph didn't like them because he saw that he saw something sure. that he could have done better but that's exactly the kind of thing you're, you're describing there isn't it oh absolutely and i i think you'll see a you know range of attitudes with regards to that certainly people who practice um you know regardless of their aesthetic preferences they do want to have a degree of control and, and mastery and if they have those things occur they want to have them happen hopefully with some degree of intention um, even if on the first instance, it's something that happens by surprise. Usually most of the people I talk with that are working in, in wet plate, they, they want to be able to repeat the result if it's desirable, even if it's, uh, incorrect by kind of, um, pure practice standards. 
Yeah, no, that 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 makes perfect sense, and I'm 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 really looking forward to this 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 gathering because it, I can I'm just imagining the number of people who are actually going to be there that are going to be taking pictures of other photographers, um, and uh, I mean Dave Jay Shrimpton is a, a very very much a um, a person photographer, and uh, and I know Andrew, you've already. Uh, worked out exactly uh, what kit's going to come along with you for for yes, that purpose. It's sitting next to me, and I'll tell you about that. But what I did, what I didn't announce, I don't think, was actually where we're holding this event. Did I? Did I? I said it was in the forest, but that doesn't limit it. Could be anywhere, couldn't it? It, it could be. And I, actually, just just in case of um, our memory might be failing us as to what <laughs> what it is that we can, we may have said or not have said, this is complicated by the fact that this is actually the second time we've got this far uh, in the conversation because I forgot to press record. Yeah. So um, now I'm not sure what I've said and what I haven't. <laughs> exactly. Said. So we're on we're on round two of talk, talking about this. Mm. This is why uh, it's well up until that point it was unusually slick. Uh, for us so far this week, I wouldn't go um, that far. No, no, perhaps not. So uh, it's it's if you have said it, then let's let's say it again. Yes. So it's it's in the forest of Dean, which is that bit of England that's nearly Wales. So you're okay. You know, it's not quite foreign country, and it's called Bra- Bracelands, not Gracelands, where Elvis lives. Brace with a B, Bracelands ca- campground, and there will be there's a link from the Facebook group if you don't do facebook group if you don't do facebook and many of you may not then you need to go online and type in bracelands b-r-a-c-e-l-a-n-d-s camp well, ground well, i'm gonna say there's, there's there's another way and Is that's, and that's going to be our um uh, miraculously instagram? appearing uh instagram account Oh yeah. Well, um, people might not do any of those things. They might just listen yeah. to us on podcasts, but they might not do Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, it's usually one. The people do one or the other, but at least it's it's yeah. another way. And we we do now have a Instagram account, and mm-hmm. believe it or not, it's called Large Format Photography Podcast. Um, yeah. uh, but so if you can find find us there, I'll put a post up. Um, which will have some some details in it somehow. It's a little. It's not very good for posting links uh, from Instagram, but we'll, there'll be some information that will at least get you in the direction of wherever you need to go. So uh, just just yep. find our uh, our very sparse uh, LFPP account on uh, Instagram for a few more details. If you can't get to Facebook, mm. yeah. So it's going to be it's going to be great fun. Uh, Forest of Dean is somewhere that I've had a kind of fascination with for so many years since watching Dennis Potter, uh, oh, Singing Detective. Mm-hmm. Was it Singing Detective? Yeah. It might be. It Part of that was set in the Forest of Dean. And everyone was just so weird. You know, it was a bit like being in the deep south of America. They weren't exactly playing banjos in the trees, but it was a bit like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I've no idea. Stephen Tegersby is quite excited about Forest of Dean, so, but then he comes from the Fens like me, so it's probably like, you know, it's like his relatives are down there. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so before I go insult anybody else who's can't, not here to defend themselves, I'm, I'm actually staring at my camera that I'm taking with me. I'm taking, I'm taking my Italian bomb B O W M four x five camera with me, which doesn't get a great deal of use. I tend to use my Toyo four five A camera most of the time, but this bomb camera is uh, is lovely. But I I, st- I struggle to use it because I just use my Toyo. So this is now going to be my dry plate camera, maybe wet plate one day if I ever get that far. So I've got a, I've got that lens that turned up from eBay, Simon, the 
French mm. Eurography Yes, then, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Which I which looks great. I took it apart and cleaned it a bit with some isopropyl alcohol. And I shine a bright light through it, but I wasn't that worried. It looks it looks okay. And put it back together again. So it has a t- two elements, I think, just a, a screw out back element and then a front element, and it has some nice uh, uh iris iris blades that close down to F twenty odd, maybe. Mm-hmm. No shutter, of course. So but I've been looking at the uh, Jason Lane drive plates, and uh, I'll probably just go with the low ISO two one. I think that was, I think that was the one that's best suited to what I've got in mind. But I can't remember now. But I'll probably end up buying both sets of plates, and then I'll put my large format photographer's hat over the lens, and that'll be my. I reckon ISO two. I should be able to time that with taking a hat out of the way and putting the hat back again. I mean, uh, Travis, what, what's your preferred method of uh, of, of, of shutter? Do you, do you use a large format photographer's hat, or have you got some other way of doing it? Um, I, I, no, I've got just um, homemade caps that are are loose enough for some of the lenses. Um, you know, uh, that, that seem to do the trick. And then, if I've uh, earlier you saw in the, the background, I've, I've currently got the the giant camera set up more in a copy stand fashion. And for that, I, <laughs> to be honest, I've just been shooting it at night. And so um, it's just the, the strobes themselves when I'm using uh, the strobe lights. Those are my, my shutter for interior uh, copy stand style work. D- Dave uh, Shrimpton has a bowler hat, which I think is just superb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually, I was hunting around. Every photographer has at least one draw, draw full of what we might say odds and sods bits and pieces that you think oh, I'll put that in there for a, a handy day, you know, for a day when I'm looking for something. And I actually found a lens cap with Olympus written on the front of it. And it's, and it just fits over this, this old French lens, Simon, with well, that- just enough, just enough friction to hold it there, but uh, uh, not enough so that if I take it off, it can act as a shutter. So well, that's that, what I'm going to use. That's exactly what I used on, on mine. I think it's from a, an Olympus trip. I think it is. Oh, actually, no, it's not. It's, uh, but it's, a, it's definitely a small one, and it, and, yeah. uh, it goes on my uh, cook triplet. Um, just, yeah. it, it, it fits it absolutely perfectly. Yeah. So I was very pleased. And I managed to um, fashion a lens board eventually out of an old photo frame, bit of black card, not card, that sort of stiff board. And I went in the dark room with a, a strong LED torch, put a dark, slide on the back a film cut cut film holder in the back put my torch in and checked for light leaks around the edge and it seems okay so i think i'm good to go so i'm going to shoot jason lane dry plates and do in my mind oldie fashioned portraits of the large format photographers who turn up to our event so they've got to be there. Um, I want I want you all to grow beards before you turn up, please, <laughs> and have some kind of hat because I don't. And then you're going to pose by your your camera, uh, and I'll I'll make dry plate pictures of everybody. But I thought I might use FP4 as well because I'm not convinced that I'll be that successful. Yeah, that's, it's it's not a bad idea having a contingency plan, is it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, but the, the the fast ISO for J Lane plates is twenty five. Yeah, but here's the thing. 
Now I'm going to have to go back to my messenger conversation I had with Jason Lang. So I was talking to him. What I really want to use these dry plates for is for salt printing. So, and for, for salt prints, you need an emulsion that's got a long tonal range. The negative doesn't necessarily need to be, doesn't really need to be uh, contrasty, but it needs to be, have good shadows and good highlights and, uh, but it, it helps if it's quite dense as well. So one of those two, and I can't remember whether it's the ISO 2 or the ISO 25, and I'm desperately looking through my uh, in- Instagram conversations that I had with um, um, Jason. Jason, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done. Uh, there he is. So he, and he said, yeah, ISO 2. That's right. So the very so this works actually. So the AS, ASA ISO two glass plate that he makes is described as having a very long tonal range, and of course that be helpful to me because I haven't got a shutter. So I'm going to probably go with the ASA ISO two glass plates for my salt printing ideas because that, that, I think that'll give the best sort of negative. But for the portraits, I'm probably going to go with a 25, which is means people can perhaps don't have to stand still for quite as long. And have you have you remembered the rules about what the actual kind of light that you've got is going to affect the ISO rating as well? Uh, well, it's the same with all those sort of orthochromatic type films, I think. Uh, I'm struggling a bit. Maybe Travis can help us, but it depends how much how much. Uh, uv light is present so the speed the effective speed of the of any of those things it happens with x-ray film it happens with ilford ortho film it happens with Harman direct positive paper the the effective speed and sensitivity of the paper will vary depending on where you are in the world how much uv light there is whether it's 12 o'clock noon or evening sunshine i'm not talking nonsense am i travis Help me out here. No, and, and certainly in the case of, of collodion, that's going to, you know, uh, UV is going to be a significant requirement for that, you know, and uh, that's where sometimes we're running into problems with the various bulbs or uh, if we're using artificial lighting, um, as in some of them will have a degree of UV coating. Same goes for lenses, you know, in cases where that can impact the oh, yeah. exposure you're getting. So so how, how do you work that out? I mean, obviously, if you use an equipment and you 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 know your equipment, and if it, if it's if it's been affected by, by by coatings, but if you're out in the field and you can't control uh, the the light as such, is there a rule of thumb that you would use to think? Well, today the ISO is one, and um, and then the, the afternoon it's it's less, always more than that. I mean, how how do you define that? I mean, I can comparable to how artists traditionally would approach, you know, film estimations when our, our meters fail us, you know, and, and we, you know, we have those, those broad strokes kind of uh, methods like Sunny 16 and when you're using film and so forth. And there's comparable sort of, I think, sensitivity that you can develop with collodion as well. But a lot of it, I think, is just trial and error, even when things are clipping along as expected uh, with, with collodion, you know, things seem to go wacky for me and just... The various variables, you know, can be hard to predict or just fickle in terms of how they respond to relative humidity, particularly if you're going on location, you know. But, but yeah, I think a lot of it just ends up being 
trial and error. I, I wish I could say I had a degree of mastery <laughs> over it, um, you know, where it was more definitive than that, but um, a degree of comfort with a number of failures before you're going to get to an achievable result that you're happy with. So I don't I don't think we asked this of of Joseph when he was he was with us, but I'm I'm just wondering what the situation is with, and I'm, I'm assuming this is the the, the right word, but uh, exposure latitude. Um, how how forgiving is wet plate? Um, I honestly don't know compared to to film. Um, uh, in terms of exposure latitude, how it would rate. Um, I've never quite investigated that, but. Um, and I think with a lot of the processes I'm working with, and um, although these days it's been mostly wet plate um, collodion, I think it, it ends up just being the fact that I'm changing situations and circumstances so much while the latitude might might be the same. Um, my light sources are, are shifting maybe on a, a daily or, or weekly basis, or I'm going from in to outside. So um, I've kind of worked against myself in terms of establishing any sort of consistent methodology with, with my approach because I'm shifting circumstances so frequently. Um, but to me, that's been always the, the fun of it. Not, not to say that I, um, I have any degree of, of absolute mastery over it, but I think when the results become too predictable for me, I, I start to lose interest from a technical standpoint. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's a cop out, but I, um, I look for those things that are going to be a little bit more unexpected. And, and I think that's what initially drew me to Collodion is um, I was pretty comfortable with, with film and, and certainly aspects of digital. And, and the Collodion was one where I, I knew I'd be thrown off of it repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering how you actually ascertain the, the correct exposure value um, for, for, for a given shot and uh, what, what difference uh, – yeah, so obviously you. you I, I assume you're, you're controlling it more with aperture than you are with shutter speed. Is, is would that be? Well, then again, though, you, some of these are going to be quite long exposures as, as well. I guess. Well, well, are you asking Simon? Sorry, Travis. Are you are? Are you asking Travis Simon? Uh, oh, for goodness' sake! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, let me just get my. I'm blaming. I'm blaming the coronavirus that I seem to be suffering coming down with. Um, how do you cope the plate? how do you get the film speed right? That's probably what I'm trying to say in my most incompetent manner. How, how do you, how do you cope to get a, to get a given film speed? Well, we have, we have different recipes of, of collodion that are right. out there and, and, you know, sometimes people will fiddle with that on their own, just like they would in, in any, you know, cooking or other enterprise. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, and some of them can be quite fast. Uh, for example, UV photographics has a, um, certain recipes that they sell that are going to be, have a higher ISO. Um, the one that I use is the, is where I originally learned at the George Eastman house, uh, the Scully and, uh, Mark Osterman, um, basic recipe for their collodion. And that's worked really well for me. And it's had a really good shelf life, which has been important for me because, uh, some weeks I'll be able to do quite a bit of work. And then I might go a couple of weeks where our, you know, given my other demands on my time, I won't be able to do as much. And so the shelf life has been really important. And so the recipe that I use, you know, factors in, I think about one, you know, ISO one and, um, and some of the others that are out there and available, they're going to have different, not only uh, sensitivities, but just like traditional films that you could purchase, they're going to have, um, 
different ways they express the tonality. So they're, they're recipes that will be made more for portraiture. And of course, you can use them any way that you want, but they're uh, customized and designed for, you know, unique purposes. So uh, that's how, how how are we doing for your uh, your your week, Andrew? My week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was I, I was holding back on whether to ask Travis to delve more into the process of making up the collodion and all that sort of stuff, but we'll perhaps hold that off. I think we should for a yeah. moment. We'll hold off on that for a moment because I was conscious that we haven't actually really got very far through our weeks. No. Uh, well, but one more thing, I would like to give a, a shout out to on on that very same Italian bomb camera. I've never really been happy with the ground glass on it, and uh, uh, I, I did get an up, a slight upgraded ground glass. It was sent to me from Italy. I've never been that happy, really. So I went on to the Facebook group uh, just around Christmas time, I think, and poked around. Then I asked generally the group, anyone got any uh, experience of either making ground glass or someone I can go to, and Sandeha Lynch pointed me to a gentleman in Lithuania who it appears that quite a lot of other people have used as well. In fact, uh, Steve Lloyd of, of, uh, Chrome, of uh, Chroma cameras have, has used him to, to make ground glass for his, I think for his Chroma 4.5 cameras. And this gentleman is on eBay and he's under Vist V-I-S-T camera. His name is Virgis, I think V-I-R-G-I-S. And it's www.vist.lt. And you can specify exact measurements, whether you want corners cut out, which I did. I wanted little the corners cut off. And um, I think I paid a grand total, including postage. It was certainly under £20, maybe about 17 or 18 And it came in a wooden box, really well packaged up. And... Um, yeah, because I'd measured the old one carefully, I, I, it dropped straight in. Uh, I, I replaced, so that that went straight in with the. Remember what side facing the lens, Simon? It's the the rough side. Rough side to the glass. Yeah. Facing facing the facing to, the, to the, facing lens, the yeah. facing the lens. Yeah. And then I had already on my bomb camera I had a piece of clear glass glass with uh, grid markings on, and I just put that back on top. Replaced the two little screws that held the clips in place. And I did some test shots in the garden because I was then paranoid that I was going to get focus shifts like you had and uh, did some carefully focused pictures in the garden. And I developed those two sheets of FP4, or it might have been foam pan, with two sheets of X-ray film, you know, that Fuji blue X-ray film I use. And I used... Jeff Perry's 20th century camera reel for both the X-ray film and the FP4. And I developed them in Caffanol CL for 70 minutes, stand development. And I demonstrated two things. One, Jeff's 20th century reel doesn't scratch the negatives. In fact, I got the best negatives I've ever had, despite, you know, I've been developing them. Thank you. I've been developing the negatives in uh, trays with glass bottoms. They were still scratched to... to uh, uh, have we got an expletive rating on this podcast? Well, they were badly scratched anyway, should we just say. But it, using Jeff's spiral, is is printed spiral, double-sided X-ray film. It was fantastic. And, and I also demonstrated that Caffanol CL, 
also works pretty well as well, I think, because it's a sort of compensating type developer. And so X-ray, that X-ray film is very contrasty. But the fact that I chucked the FP4 in there to test my focus on the new screen and they came out bitingly sharp. So, you know, I've, I clearly very skillfully replaced my ground glass and put it the right way round. And so for less than 20 quid, I've got now a really bright ground glass. And Sandeha Lynch recommended this guy. And, and also the peers that these things have gone in the chroma cameras as well. So uh, I'll put a note to the show notes to Mr. Vergis in Lithuania. And he, he also sells some really interesting stuff. He sells collapsible pinhole cameras with bellows on as well. And he makes and he makes like a little pinhole shutter. He's a really interesting. He's got a really interesting eBay site. So check that out. Vist Vist dot lt. So that's my uh, that's my week. What or not week really? But you know some things I've been up to. Fortnight uh, and a half. <laughs> yes, and other things as well. But hey, you know. Yeah. It's not about me. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I'll, I'll keep mine brief as well. Because, I mean, la- last time it was so brief, I don't think I even did it. No. Um, because we were just having too – it was just getting far too interesting with Bill. Um, so I'll – but I'm – I can't actually remember where, where I was going. I know that I was talking about my Aero Ektar experience, my latest Aero Ektar experience, and I'd uh, um, had the back of the lens chamfered off a little bit so I could actually push it through the front standard of my speed graphic, and that worked a treat. So I was able to print a new um, holder for its uh, lens board, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it sit that further back. So it's, a, it's just the balance of the camera is just much better now uh, than, than it was. But one one thing I've I've done with that camera since um, at the um, one evening at the Six Times Dark Room in Stoke on Trent, please come along. Um, um, was um, one of the members there, Robert Price, who's also in the group, and, and there's a reasonable chance to be listening to this podcast as well. Uh, he he brought along his oscilloscope and um, and some bits of kit, and we did some speed testing. Uh, on the uh, the shutter, the focal plane shutter on the speed graphic, because I I was feeling it was overexposing uh, for the uh, settings I was I was using, and uh, you know which is not really that much of a surprise uh, because unless it's one of those things is you know serviced and serviced well and regularly, uh, your 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 shutter speeds are going to be out. Um, well, they were they were very out. I think the fastest shutter speed I got out of it, and that was it's a thousandth of a second i think it got up to about three hundredth of a second maybe um it might well, have wheezed that, there it's best to err on the side of overexposure simon you know that <laughs> well yeah that, that's it it was helping me um and then all the all the other sh- uh, shutter speeds were correspondingly slower than that um and really the only shutter speed that actually worked at, at the stated speed was around about a thirtieth of a second um and as paul bullock uh, also a member of uh, our group and listens to this podcast uh, he indicated well that, that's obvious isn't it because that's the the one with the less load upon it um so therefore it's it should actually have more of a chance of being more accurate in the first place and uh, so there you go so i've been given some advice on how to get it uh, retentioned and uh, and, mm. and serviced um somebody uh, i can't remember who it was so if you listen to this i do apologize uh, but sent me some details via instagram and uh, a link that i need to read properly so sorry i i perhaps i wasn't listening properly which is often the case <laughs> <laughs> is this the focal plane cloth shuttery thing? Yes. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, you can. I'm sure Matt Marash, I'm sure, was talking about tensioning those things. Yeah, well, I, well, apparently it's not that difficult. Yeah, because I was, I was yeah. saying uh, to this chap, I will, I will, I'll take it to my repairman, and said, no, 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 do it yourself, do it yourself. And I was thinking, oh, okay. <laughs> so I now feel like I need to do it myself, uh, or at least give it Pressure's a go. Anyway. On now, isn't it? It's, it's, on. It is, um, and I've, I want to take that with me to uh, to the gathering in the forest as well, because I want to use my Aerorectile there. That would mm. be really cool. You um, will. Yeah, but somebody else is using fancy cameras and clothing and all this kind of stuff. So I need an aerorectile just to keep up with everybody. Did you not back the dry plate holder on Kickstarter? Uh, no, but uh, actually we've touched upon that. And the reason being is I've got a wet plate camera. Well, I've got a, a camera which I think will uh, take dry plates. Oh, that thing I had for a while. That's it, yeah. And you, yeah. it's now back with me and I've not used it either. Um, hmm. But uh, but there you go. That's got a cloth. That's got a cloth roller uh, Thornton Picard shutter. Yes. on that one anyway which appears yes. to work but it's just a bit scary it does it is um, yeah. okay so just uh what other things um uh i've 3d printed a filter holder for the um for the Divya i saw launch. that yeah well I've, I've actually on round two of that oh actually no you would have seen the new one but so i posted it in the light in the dark podcast group i didn't actually put it into our group i don't think but uh um so yes yeah, so, and that's now gone on to the Devia. Uh, 7705 or whatever it's called uh, and it works it works absolutely perfectly so I'm really really pleased with that I'm loving 3D printing um, it's it's all good stuff uh, and then one last thing over the weekend it's not large format but it's got a bit of a connection possibly one day um, I was at the Sunny 16 photo walk around Oxford mm -hmm. and uh, that organised by... That looked fun, didn't it? It was great. It, it was better than the annual mystery gathering. I reckon the one in Oxford was far better. <laughs> quite, quite quite clearly. And uh, and uh, 22 of us uh, went, went along. Nobody with large format, unfortunately, including myself. Ah, you should um, have done. Yeah, but... Um, but thanks to uh, Sunday 16, or in, in particular, uh, Graham Jager for organising that, who may mm. show his face at the gathering, um, along with uh, Jeremy North may show his face at the gathering on the Saturday night. Um, and um, But there's a chap there called Dave Walker, and I've mentioned oh, this on... Oh, he's the brownie shutter... Robot brownie. Robot brownie man, isn't he? That's that's right. And uh, he, he was there. And and he's got a prototype LCD shutter running in the in his six twenty brownie, and it worked. I've seen the pictures now. It actually worked. So the the where this is a potential. Hang on, hang on. What did you say? I was the words. I was processing the words as you were saying. LCD shutter. Did you an say LCD? So an electronic LCD shutter. So that. It's, um, it's, I think it's actually two, two pieces of um, two LCD screens uh, that use polarized light at 90 degrees. So uh, it's just like when you get two polarizers, uh, linear polarizers, and you, you turn them uh, through 90 degrees, then it goes virtually black. And the, the principle is mm. the same, but it can be is electronically it? controlled. Wow. So well, I saw, the, I saw the, the little electronic gubbins he was yeah. developed which is effectively the timing circuit i suppose yeah but that's, didn't, that's uh, and he had that he had that uh, very basically a couple of elastic bands held it to the camera from what i could see yeah it's, um, it's but i didn't it wasn't i didn't realize it i didn't realize it uh sort of done something to the shutter as well wow. well he hasn't he's well he's added a shutter that goes in behind the lens okay. and and this is really where it um comes up and by the way if you if you want to look at that piece of kit if you just go onto instagram and look up dave the walker mm. um then uh, you'll, you'll you'll find it there but the, yeah. the the point is that where this gets 
particularly interesting for the large formats uh, people of, amongst us is this is has the potential of eventually because it's i mean it's it's early days and there's there'll be a fair bit of work to do to actually make this work but you could feasibly fit one of these things actually inside a large format camera that doesn't and and use lenses that don't have a shutter and you can use higher mm. shutter speeds with film without a focal plane shutter mm. um, but we're quite wow. some way away from that but the and there's lots of problems how do you get the thing in there you're gonna to have to go in through the ground glass screen to fit it onto the back of the lens and all, all sorts of problems but the potential is there and i think that's that's quite exciting really so uh, that's that's me. That's me done. And uh, let's let's head over to Chicago. This is almost like being on the Classic Lenses. Yeah, podcast. I was then going to say. Hey, so, what's the weather like in Chicago, Johnny? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Travis. So, yeah, so we'll ask Travis. What's the weather like in Chicago? <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we've we got a bit of snow finally. So it's uh, it's been pretty mild, but uh, but yeah, we have, we have snow. In fact, I was out last night uh, as, as it was coming down for a couple hours, doing some some long exposures. I was with a. Uh, uh, Sony a7 III last night, so shooting digitally. Yeah, I think shoot, shooting at night with digital is it. Do I, do I dare say it's better? Um, certainly, I, I'm certainly happier with the, res, the results that I get uh, shooting digitally than I, I do shooting film. Although the, I see some shots shot with uh, like cine still. Um, mm. in areas where there's street lighting and neon signs and things. And I think they, they look great, but uh, but in general terms, I've, I prefer digital at night. Well, Bill, Bill Schwab's digital, I didn't, I mean, I did question him as to whether they were film or digital. I wasn't really sure because uh, I've seen some cracking Cinestill shots and, and they did look a bit like that, but no, they were digital, weren't they? Yeah. I think he, he said something about making them hyper real, which means he must be tweaking them somehow. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so Travis, what, what what have you been up to lately? Um, most recently, I was uh, I'm I'm trying to correct or fix or uh, modify the homemade 16 by 20 inch uh, plate holder, wet plate holder that I have for my larger camera. It's it's had some uh, design flaws I needed to correct, and so I've been working on that gradually. It was when I first made it, I was primarily working with uh, glass plates and making either large ambrotypes or uh, negatives, glass negatives in that it seemed to be the more practical way to go even though glass takes a little bit more preparation the rigidity of the glass works well for a, a holder of that scale and so I started just to save time or I thought I was saving time uh, using aluminum plates instead which are already kind of ready to go and, and work as um, a wet plate process and make large tintypes. Unfortunately, the, the plates at that size don't have the rigidity to keep them from bowing in the plate holder. So I had to do some modifications to that to, to hold the plate in without having a, a bend in it affecting the focal plane. Yeah, as you were talking there about uh, aluminum, sorry, aluminum, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I was trying to remember a, a photography supplier that I I think I just rediscovered yesterday and I think they're in the Republic of Ireland and I, I'm, I can't find them now because they're called something like maybe photo supplies or something and it was there and they're an excellent resource for alternative photo supplies dot ie 
because they were selling ready. Is that it? I don't know. It might be them. They were selling very diverse bits of kit, and some of the stuff they were selling was uh, uh, aluminium ready made uh, plates. And I think we touched on this with Joseph, didn't we, about where he sources his mm. plates from. But are these things that you buy ready made? Because they have to be quite clean. Don't they, Travis? Yeah, Is that right? the, the, the metal uh, I get from a, a trophy supply company, and a lot of ah, people that was in it. The, the states yeah. uses them. They just coincidentally happen to be right down the road from me uh, yeah. in the Chicago suburbs in Mount Prospect. And, and so I get most of my aluminum from them and have it cut to various sizes, or I'll get larger sheets and cut it down myself. Um, sometimes I'm working on like a, a mini Graflex and doing tin types that are two and a half by three and a half inches. And then most recently I've been messing around with the larger homemade camera and doing 16 by 20, but I get the aluminum from them. It comes, you know, coated with a, a peel off plastic. So the, it's quite clean when you prepare it and pour the collodion on. And, uh, however, the glass, you have to do a bit more cleaning yourself and preparation. And I tend to coat the edges of the glass with um, albumin. So I just get a, a dozen eggs from the grocery store and separate the whites and mix up my own albumin and uh, coat the edges. And that keeps the collodion from flaking yeah, away off the edges of the plate. Yeah. Well, I, I can't actually find this site in Ireland, but some, somewhere I read on Facebook or Twitter or <laughs> Instagram, um, they were pointing folks to this site in Ireland and uh, they're selling lots of raw chemicals and aluminium plates and stuff like that. So this, um, the, the 20, did you say 20 by 16 plate holder that you made it yourself, did you, Travis? Is that right? That's right. That's right. Because finding these things on the open market must be um, tricky. Well, I mean, I think they have some at that scale. They're, they're quite expensive, though, mm. and... Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure uh, when I first got into all this, the degree to which I wanted to really <laughs> get into it. And it's a it's a slippery slope. And so, you know, it's uh, I was keeping the, the cost down or so I thought and just building my own. And, and I worked off the, the templates and design ideas that I had seen others um, post online. And so I I took a run at it myself and. And mine ended up being way, what I would say is overbuilt. It's extraordinarily heavy. Um, I was concerned that my lack of woodworking skills would create flaws that would cause light leaks. And to compensate for that, I just simply overbuilt everything. I thought, you know, larger corners, things like that would help uh, correct for any lacking that I had in, in being able to work with the material and, and construct it appropriately. But it is, it does result in a and a camera that's a behemoth and it's essentially built out of two by fours from the hardware store and garbage bag material. It's, it's black six mil mil plastic um, that function as the bellows. I don't have a traditional bellows. It's just the, the plastic and it's all supported on the interior with curtain rods, uh, cheap curtain rods that slide at the four corners when I, you know, expand or contract the assembly. That sounds really cool. And, uh, uh, it's as, as soon as you start talking, going down this route, I always think of the, the homemade camera podcast uh, because they, they they talk about this kind of thing all the time, as you as you might imagine, because that's what the the whole show's about. So there's just it's just interesting to hear different ways how people have constructed their their homemade cameras, and I've I've not heard curtain rails being used before. 
So what, yeah, I experimented so, with a few different things. At first, it was um, um, smaller PVC pipe nested in larger pipe, but it, it, it didn't quite hold its rigidity over the, the length of the camera, which is about three or four feet. And um, I can't remember. There were a few other things that I tried before I settled in on the, the curtain rod. Oh, bungee cords. I thought <laughs> bungee cords would work, and that was a huge failure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it just kind of get closer and closer to the result. Uh, Travis, when we before we started recording, uh, we caught a glimpse of your of a huge camera behind you. Is that the one that you were using on that occasion as a copy stand? Is that is that the one you were talking about? That's right. Yeah. So the bellow the, the bellows didn't look to be or the 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 normal accordion collapsey type. So you've got a front standard and you've got your rear standard and um, just explain to me where the curtain rails fit in. So in, instead of bellows, it's essentially garbage bag material, um, like six millimeter plastic, black plastic right. um, that I, I cut to fit. And so it just kind of scrunches like bag bellows, essentially. It uh, scrunches together, but I did need uh, armature kind of structure on the interior to prevent that from blocking the, you know, yeah. the shot itself. And so the curtain rods are on the interior of that bellows that false bellows um at each of the four corners preventing it from collapsing in on the the projection i see gotcha and you made did you make well it sounds like you must have done made the whole camera from scratch that's right yeah there um this has been a, a few years but um um Giles Clement posted um the project that he had done uh, to create a 60 by 20 camera out of out of wood and I, I saw that and I'd already been doing wet plate a little bit and, and was just fascinated by that. And I've always been fascinated by, despite all the amazing technology that we have photographically, especially now, um, that how simple it can be, you know, at least in the, the, the basic, the fundamental needs to, to make an image, to capture an image and it can be as complex or simple as you want. So I get a, I think I get a degree of uh, satisfaction out of the camera actually being quite junky and still being able to create an, an image that, you know, on appearance can look sophisticated or, you know, like a capture from any device we might use. Yeah, I, I totally understand uh, where where you come from with that. I mean, that's when I got back into photography, I was adapting old lenses to digital and the 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 more odd the lens would look, whether it be some silver Russian thing or going onto a Sony camera or an Olympus or something like that, the happier I was. <laughs> and uh, it's almost seemed to add to the to the to the quality of the photos in case of it's a good photo and look what I use to take it with. Right. So, uh, so no, I to totally get that. Um, I I think it's about time we found out a little bit more about who you are. Um, so for the for the benefit of our our, our listeners, we will uh, give you the opportunity to uh, introduce yourself. Um, <laughs> and just uh, uh, before we get to that, um, I just want to say thank you to Bob Matter, um, who listens to our show, and um, and he bumped into you some somewhere in Chicago, and uh, and got talking to you and, and mentioned us to uh, to you, and uh, you said that that they, that sounds quite interesting, and uh, and then uh, Bob uh, sent an email to me 
uh, saying, I found this really interesting guy. You should have him on the show. And uh, that was <laughs> that goes back uh, well into last year. I think it might be in September last year, something that's like right, that. That's right, that's uh, right. So, uh, so you, you, were, you were added uh, to our recommended um, list of people to talk to, and uh, which is very, very long, I've got to say. And uh, we finally uh, got around to you. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's great to get you on. And when... We did our uh, due diligence, uh, which basically means go onto the guy's website. Uh, that's that's what our due diligence is, and uh, and I was I was knocked out by your photography. I mean, you, the front page um, is pretty much all, all wet, the wet plate stuff. I mean, there's uh, you, and we will talk about about your different projects that you have there. Um, but certainly, uh, if somebody is to go onto your uh, website, which is travisbryanlinville.com. Um, and uh, we'll put a link in the notes as well um, and mention that name again. Uh, but you'll see the, there are plenty of photographs there that are, um, I, are they all tintypes? Uh, it's a mixture of uh, tintypes and ambrotypes. Yeah. And uh, they, they're really, really distinctive as, I mean, that's the nature of that kind that, that recording medium anyway. Um, but what strikes me about them is that you can tell they're modern yet they're old. And um, and I, I I really like that. But uh, but perhaps if you if you could give um, our listeners a, a a bit of a um, a bit of a history about yourself, how you how you got here, um, and then we can delve a little bit deeper into into your processes and working practices. Sure, it was great to finally meet Bob in person. Um, we'd been connected on social media for a, for a while, but uh, finally uh, connected in person. It, it, uh, around September and so that was uh, that was welcome meeting so um, yeah my, my background I um, without giving my in, entire life story I, I, I got into photography and uh, in high school just um, classes were typical you know then film photography everybody got their Pentax K1000 which I know comes up again and again um, but that was the camera I, I learned on and uh, um, there's a number of my friends were getting there uh, first cars, which I, I knew I wouldn't have. The, the camera was kind of my machine to work with, and and I, I dug into it pretty quickly. Um, I, I went to, to school in Ohio and, and studied photography there, and then um, uh, on to graduate school at Clemson in South Carolina. And so uh, once I started, I was just kind of kind of dug in and, and really enjoyed it. And of course, during that time, that was in the the mid to late nineties. And so, um, pretty much the majority of my, my education was in traditional analog photography, because even though, uh, that digital had arrived, it hadn't been integrated into a lot of programs. And so, um, you came out of school expecting to know about digital, even if your, your education didn't quite include it. And so, um, a lot of my, my experience with digital is self-taught over the years you sit down with a back then you know just a textbook and you go through it page by page and and work through photoshop but all my education and experiences was in the dark room and i i have to say i was a a little disappointed when when digital did become so popular because part of my fascination and what attracted me to photography was working in the dark room working with the chemicals working with the film um knowing that there were limitations on the number of exposures you had, you know, and so each one um, required that careful consideration. And so certainly digital has given us all sorts of great tools and abilities and technology, but um, 
I, I really did miss that connection that originally got me into photography altogether, which was the dark, the dark room and, and film. And so, you know, as we've seen in the past several years, there's been a bit of a, uh, resurgence and, and renaissance with film and just general interest in it altogether, but also we're seeing it married with a lot of the contemporary tools that we have for, you know, for example, making digital negatives. So it's been nice to see it all come full circle. And, and I'm certainly happy that it's, um, it's regained popularity since that's what drew me into it originally. Professionally, I've, um, after I got done with school, I, I taught for uh, a short period for, for Clemson and then did a talk for them for a summer session uh, abroad. And then uh, when I came back, I, I was looking for something more full-time and I spent a year working at the National Office for the Society for Photographic Education, which was a nice opportunity because it just really got me uh, uh, the ability to network and meet and learn about the work of a lot of people working all over the country uh, with photography. And after that year was up, I I got back into teaching and taught at a couple schools down in, in Georgia. I was at Georgia College and State University for a year and then a few years at, at Georgia Southern University before coming up here to, to where I'm teaching now at uh, Elgin Community College. So I've been here since... 2009 something about you just just talking there something just just struck me about the uh the there's a relatively high percentage of our guests that are actually involved in education um and large format photography i'm just wondering if there's a if there's a, a, a correlation there between the uh photograph well photography uh, educators and, and large format i i would say definitely i mean if if only for you know, from a practical standpoint, I think there are a lot of uh, professionals that just when when things switched over to uh, to digital, you know, they, they just they were compelled to to make that jump as as quickly as possible when everyone really saw it moving that direction, just for expedience and and what clients were expecting. And uh, I think in academia, um, you know, you have the there's maybe two factors. There's the luxury of just being able to hold on to those things just because you value them if you want, you know, even if something else comes along, um, you know, you can hopefully sustain both. Um, and then also sometimes it just has to do with the slow moving wheels within uh, certain circles or certain aspects of academia. You know, those things might, when you have whole programs and departments uh, built around one model or one method, uh, making the transition to an entirely new system is going to take time. And I think for that reason, uh, both for wanting to maintain the traditional methods and also just the slow moving of the process at times, we have a lot of people in education that are going to be either versed in it or if they didn't have that as their experience themselves, then they you know, have the benefit of being able to explore those things within the context of a, of a uh, higher education platform. So Travis, what's what's in a, a Travis Linville curriculum? What sort of what what, are, what do you teach over a uh, a year or however long you know you you have students for? What does it look like? Well, I, mean, I think we we try to start it off with just a general philosophy, which is um, you know if we look at painters, you know their raw materials paint, and you know ceramic artists they're working with clay and. Um, you know, we look at the, the raw material that other artists work with and we, we, we try and um, communicate to our students that uh, their raw material is not film, their raw material is not pixels, their raw material is light. And so mm -hmm. if we start from that 
standpoint, we can be as, as technical or as playful as we want. You know, we can we can really push the boundaries of how we experiment or how we think about these these devices are are working in terms of how we're capturing and manipulating that light and um, you know how how faithful we want to stay to the particular techniques or how we want to you know jump wildly away from them if we choose depending on our goals and our aims and how we want to use photography and so uh, as for the the curriculum itself we we offer our students um, for their initial class they can take a, a they're still kind of siloed in those those categories that we traditionally use which we have digital one and uh, and film one so even though we're trying to step away from from them you know thinking in in those strict categories the courses are still designed in that way and so um, just for practical reasons in terms of the equipment that we need to teach with and so they'll take either one of those classes but we tend to cover essentially the same concepts and the same topics in either one of those classes and um, you know if they work in the dark room first and, and elect to go take the digital classes later you know they jump on they get into the digital class after they've taken dark room and suddenly they realize what the burning and dodging tools do you know <laughs> without having had any previous experience because they've done that in the dark room and then vice versa right they're gonna um, perhaps have a better understanding of ISO if they've taken digital first because they might be manipulating that shot to shot unlike mm -hmm. their film class where once they put a roll of film in they're, you know they're working primarily with that sensitivity and so um, we've tried to embrace that fluidity between the different methods and so for most of our beginning students they're going to take either one of those courses and be encouraged to to work back and forth and once they've taken either one we really invite them to come back and use those spaces as, as much as they would like. And you have a reasonably equipped darkroom as well, by the sounds of it? We do. We have uh, a 15-station uh, oh. large darkroom uh, that's used predominantly for, for black and white work. Um, we also occasionally run our, our wet plate work out of that. It's a double-sided sink, and so um, we either have both sides running uh, with full chemistry, um, or we have one side that we reserve for perhaps all process or, or wet plate when our advanced students are working with that. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, you, you know, you're going to, at some point, it, I, I didn't know, but you've, you've, you've kind of uh, said as much at some point you're introducing sort of alternative processes to these. What, how, how old are these students, Travis? Uh, it's, it's quite varied. We're a community college. And so we, we, uh, we do have the traditional um, 18 to maybe 20, two-year-old student, yep. but we also get a, a quite a few students that are age coming to take classes. And so okay. um, some have had experience in photography before. It's kind of all over the place. We yeah. get students who have never heard of film, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, and then we get students too who might uh, be challenged working digitally, right? Or, I wonder, I wonder about those, uh, I mean, you touched upon it there, about those, there were some students who were just unaware of film and they come to a, a photography uh, course. And I'm just wondering, I'd, I'd almost want to be a fly on the wall when they when they first clap eyes on a large format camera. I'm just wondering what kind of uh, range of reactions 
you get uh, with, with, with your students that uh, come into contact with large format photography the, perhaps for the first time and, and uh, you know, is, if it's something that leaves a, a lasting impression on them or they, they're really happy to get away from it and back onto something <laughs> uh, more handleable. Well, I, you know, I certainly hope so because I start the classes, even Darkroom 1, Photo 1, uh, I start the class with large format photography, which they don't use. They, they do it as part of our first couple weeks of classes. They all get uh, 35 millimeter cameras checked out to them. But I want to start them with that just because I want them to understand the, the simplicity. Um, I mean, certainly large format has a lot of complexity to it as well. But, you know, I take off the the back of the camera, the back stander with the ground glass. And I say, here's where all the electronics go <laughs> when they see it's just an empty, an empty box. Uh, you know, or if it's a, a camera that I've got set up for wet plate and it's got a, you know, an old brass lens on it, you know, it's say uh, nose to ass brass and glass, you know, it's a, uh, there's, there's not, not really much in between. And, and I have them work in small groups, um, taking portraits of each other because that's an easy way to get them excited about, you know, working in that process. And some of them are, are tentative, but they, they work as groups and I assign each one of them a different control. Someone's in charge of resetting the shutter. Someone's in charge of paying mm -hmm. attention to the aperture setting. Someone's in charge of making sure that the film is loaded in the holders and we're using paper, paper negatives. So they get the more immediate gratification of seeing the result. Um, those that have no idea what a negative is learn about that negative process in the first couple of weeks. And, um, and also I'm already introducing them to the, to the print development process. Um, and in that way, introducing them to the film development process, which has pretty much the same steps. So, um, the class used to begin with like several weeks of lecture. And what you would see is a group of students come in very excited about learning photography and, you would lecture at them for a few weeks and, and the, you would just witness the passion drain out of the room and the <laughs> excitement fade. And, uh, and so several years ago, I, I you know, was just searching for ways to correct that and, and get them in and working with it right off the bat in, in a way where they would experience that. And so I think they quite like the large format, a lot of them. And I think it even incentivizes them to stick around perhaps and maybe be able to work with those cameras at the higher levels. Um, in, in the fact that they get to do that in the first couple of weeks. And, and I think it makes it more meaningful when you put a K1000 in their hand and all those things are happening internally where they really don't get to witness it. They now have somewhat of an understanding um, of what's happening inside the camera because they've worked with the large format from day one. Yeah, I think that's a, a really innovative and clever way of, of, of teaching to throw the students straight effectively straight into that situation without to my mind you'd have to think well i've got to explain what an aperture is and what a shutter is and how f the medium responds to light and you know that's presumably the old way of that you used to do it you know the like two weeks of lectures but actually you just throw them straight at the camera and that and they're kind of learning on the job aren't they they're question they'll ask questions and they'll say well why does that lens close down and well, they might not even use those terminologies, but how come the whole changes shape? And so they'll learn as they go along and it's hands-on as well, which is just brilliant. Well, that's the hope. And, and I think I have a great deal to learn about, uh, you know, how to be an effective teacher. But one of the things that yeah. in the time that I have been teaching, I realized is that 
um, I, w- I was simply teaching too much. I was, uh, yeah. in my excitement for the subject, I was wanting to tell them, uh, expedite their learning, tell them all about it. And it was, it was counterproductive. And if I just kind of let them kind of go out and experiment and make some of those mistakes on their own, um, they would be invested in a way where they wanted to learn. And a lot of the work was done. They were actively wanting to, to know how it operates. And instead of me kind of begging them to pay attention, they, they were in that process fully. I can certainly see the merit in that approach. I, I've long wished either of my kids, uh, 23 and 21 to show some interest in photography. And my daughter eventually did. And, uh, somebody gave her an instant uh, Instax camera, uh, which she loved. And, um, I, I was given an old cheap Nikon FG 20, I think. And I just gave it to her and, uh, it broke eventually because a knob fell off. <laughs> but she, then she said to me, well, um, can I have, can I have one, a, a new inverted commas camera for my 21st birthday? So I bought her an OM one Simon, you tried to sell me some broken one that you had, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't going to give that to my daughter for her 21st. And I haven't really given her, I, I said, look, you know, she'd got kind of got the basics. And I said to her, watch the little needle inside. If it's in the middle, that probably means your exposure's right. And I gave her some very, very loose guidance and some color film. And she hands a color film back to me and I develop it. And I notice things like some camera shake and stuff. And so I'll email her the pictures back and say, you're inside, you know, you're going to really struggle you know, uh, just taking a picture with with such a slow shutter speed. And, and then that gives me an opportunity to tell her a little bit more about shutter speed. So she's kind of finding a way. And then she'll, she's starting to, uh, she suddenly decides that she likes that sort of very shallow depth of focus look. And so that sparks another discussion. She said, well, how come that picture has got, you know, everything that uh, the picture is sharp, the face is sharp, but everything else is out of focus. And how come this other one I've taken is everything's kind of in focus. So that, you know, I haven't gone out of my way to explain depth of field to her and small apertures and stuff. But of course, her just experiencing it and then coming back to me with those questions is, is that she's learning, I think, in a much more effective manner, which sounds a bit like what you're doing. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Just, um, you know, I, I think once once they're interested in, in something they want to achieve, you know, then then it's um, that's kind of half the battle, you know. Um, and what we do, I think, uh, for any of us that have been doing it any amount of time, we take for granted perhaps the the things that we're doing. And, and so, yeah. um, you know, as much as I can, I try and work with analogies with the students, but also, you know, if I... Uh, ask them, you know, how many of them drove to class and, you know, operating a motor vehicle is, is, is a pretty complicated uh, thing to do. But of course, most of them do it without thinking much, you know, and just tired, get out of bed, get to school as quickly as they can. And, and they're doing a pretty complex activity and hopefully not while they're texting. And, um, you know, and so if we talk about photography, that uh, some of them might get frustrated initially that they're not achieving the results they want, but it it's it's quite a few steps, you know, before they're going to get to a degree of proficiency, and and then they're okay with it, or I think they're at least uh, have a a degree of patience. And all of them, you know, they don't have the same experience. Perhaps uh, those of us who grew up, you know, without digital, um, 
we had Instamatic cameras and, and things like that, but photography was always a process, right? There was something, there were, there were multiple steps. It wasn't, uh, there wasn't that immediacy to it. And so I try to be empathetic with my students that their experience of photography is one where they don't have to know anything about it necessarily. And they can, their, their devices are quite good at making really impressive images, uh, with very little skill. And so that's the photography that they've all, always known. And so I'm asking them to take on something that's the total opposite of that, you know, that is heavy process that takes a lot of patience and um, a certain amount of time and a certain amount of failure to be able to get sometimes even a basic result. Hmm. Right. I, I want to, let, let's, let's go back to your, um, well, where we were before we uh, finally got around to introducing you. And um, and that was uh, to do with your uh, wet plate uh, work, with your portraiture work in particular, which um, I talked about earlier, which I find really striking. And, and I know that Andrew wants to talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, the process and preparation. Um, but I just just want to just um, firstly go into the these photos and the fact that you know, they they're using a very old method. Um, yet the photography, um, the subject matter, the people that are in there, um, they're all very modern and contemporary. Um, and that's not just a matter of, you know, they're, they're wearing normal clothes. It's just, it's, it's also the poses, the looks they give into the camera. You know, they, they're not just holding a, a rigid position for as long as they, because they, they need to, I mean, there's, there's, I can see one photograph where there's, well, maybe two, there's something close to a smile in there as well. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, so I'm, I'm just, just wondering about your approach to uh to to this type of photography in, the, in this modern world with such a, an old way of doing things and um yeah what what's your thought process behind that um well as far as the portraiture goes um you know i'd never really done much portraiture in the past in fact it was the process that it kind of got me into it just because testing alone portraiture was the um you know, I'm not having to drag the camera out on location. I'm not having to drag the chemistry out on location necessarily. And so um, I, I guess I could have photographed objects, but it, it seemed like portraits were a great way to kind of um, test and learn the process without the, the demands of going out. And even though a lot of what I'd done in the past had involved some sort of altered landscape or manipulated darkroom uh, work that included landscape. And so, uh, yeah, it's the, the process is, is closely tied to my entry into portraiture. Um, and, uh, I think a lot of it too, is just looking at the, at the work of others. You know, I think so much of it is, um, uh, uh, just observation and, and seeing how others use it both historically, you know, so a lot of the techniques, um, you know, that I might've seen, I particularly like the, the intense backlight, um, in the, and kind of forced vignetting in the, in the background, um, that I've done a lot, and I think uh, I can't even remember the the artist off the top of my head, but it was in the um, the Art Institute in Chicago. Uh, I saw an exhibition, and, and this technique just stood out to me. And I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try that, or I'll see, you know, a contemporary celebrity portrait by by Dan Winters, and um, just as a technical exercise, I'll try and imitate the the style of lighting that's produced there. And so, some of this has been uh, simply a product of of fascination or, or trial and error 
working with the subject, hopefully in a, in a collaborative way where, you know, I'm, it's not just someone sitting in front of the lens, but there is a, a dialogue between us. And then in some cases, uh, the portraits are made um, purely as an expression of an, an idea that I have. So the, uh, the person is standing in for a, a portrait that's meant to be more of a metaphor. And so um, I think I've got a variety up there. So there, there are a few that are, are more, um, you know, traditional sessions where it's, it's, it's a portrait of that person meant to be uh, indicative and evocative of that, that individual's personality or in that moment. And, and then others are certainly a person, but they're meant to be more um, symbolic. I mean, going back to the old days um, where there were neck braces and things like that to, to keep the people still, I mean, are you, these, I'm, I'm assuming you're using a lot of light and therefore you're, you're bringing your exposure time down considerably uh, to, to what was the case back then. Is that, is that the case? It is. Uh, all these, are not all of but the majority are shot with, um, uh, with strobe lights. And so occasionally I will use a stand or a head brace, you know, just to keep them in position. Um, I found that it it does okay a lot of times if I don't use that because they're not having to stay still for any sustained amount of time. Um, so the duration is isn't really the problem. It's more to do with the depth of field, which is is so so shallow. I can't really stop down my lens um, because the process is so greedy for light. And um, so I have the lights pretty close to my subjects in a lot of cases and. Uh, it requires every bit of that that light that I I use, and so the aperture is wide open, and for that reason they can't move. But it has less to do with the them sitting still for an extended period of time. I think I think that's the thing that uh, I was going to mention depth of field. In fact, I started talking about it, then I realised my microphone was muted. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering why Simon just ignored me. Uh, there's on this page of of your wet plate portrait says the guy with a beard well there's a few guys with beards so there's a particularly sort of scary one um two-thirds of the way down where he's sort of looming lurching into the camera lens in a very sort of modern way really not at all old-fashioned portrait style and the tip of his well certainly his beard's sharp and his eyes clearly are bitingly sharp but there's a pretty i don't know maybe the end of his nose is, is losing it a bit but i was surprised at how much you know, is uh, is is actually. I agree. Focus, I, I was thinking the same thing as well. Certainly, yeah. certainly, both eyes all through his beard. I think maybe the end of his nose is losing it a bit, and his ears certainly are. But you know, uh, there's it's, it's not bad, is it? Really, you know. Yeah, and I th- I can't. Re- that's an older one. Um, I think I can't recall if that was a a, a, a four by five plate I was making or an eight by ten. Um, but in some cases, I'm using uh, modern lenses. Mm. In some cases, I'm just, you know, doing um, large format technique where I'm manipulating the standards to to hopefully maximize that where that plane of focus falls. Um, and also, in this is one that I did quite long ago, and there are a couple things I was playing around with this. Um, we're just using the wider lenses and getting the, the subjects closer to the camera. And in these cases, too, and this was more a product of uh, my lack of equipment at that time, the lights were probably right on top of the subject. I mean, and <laughs> at that time, too, I had the I had two or three lights uh, just kind of jockeying for position together 
right on top of each other. Um, and I think this one too, you can actually tell there's, there's always a giveaway when you look at the catch light. Um, you can yeah, see that I had two lights very close together uh, yeah. um, and you get that double catch light in the eye. I hadn't noticed it until you just pointed it out. So and and the, I do that a lot too. I'll look at uh, I'll look at other people's work and I'll look at the catch light to give me a clue as where they're positioning their lights. If they're yeah. using a single source light, roughly, if it might give me a clue how big the light is. If I factor that into the, you know, if I get some idea what the focal length might be of the lens they're using, and, and I try and deconstruct people's work that I, I'm attracted to. Yeah, there's a lot of these. Of now, now you now you've pointed out. I've got those sort of two close together lights in their eyes but i i i find that less distracting although i mean it than having two two quite close together looks kind of all right sometimes when you get multiple lights in their eyes that looks a bit mm-hmm. and look a bit distracting what if you notice it but i'm not sure you always do to be honest i think the shots have just are just so dramatic in their own they right are, yeah you're looking all over there you, you, yeah and you're not looking at the detail you're looking no at i wasn't until it was pointed out to be honest yeah mm-hmm. the, the shot of the girl with the hands around her face is particularly striking i thought yeah that was one that was done more as um um you know a metaphor this was done um I had it in the exhibition. There were some strong reactions to it because, mm. you know, just like any yeah. artwork, people are going to bring their own baggage. Um, Absolutely, yeah. But at the time I was, um, I was making this. It was we were, there were more and more articles I was reading about just the influence of social media on people's lives and mm. um, how we're, we're we're all kind of being, to, for better or worse, you know, manipulated or our our attitudes and our responses are being affected and impacted by. You know these invisible forces that that we we don't outright have a day to day interaction with, other than a, a digital interaction with them, an online uh, interaction with them. And so um, I thought the idea of using a process like this that that predates these things substantially um, just made sense to me, and I, I liked the idea of. And I had several more um, as part of that series. I don't know. I don't think I've got them posted on my website, uh, and they were all kind of the same character. Yeah, I think well, it's just, are, I was just going to say for, for those people listening to the to, to the show, it really is worth getting onto uh, Brian's website, and I'll just give a you know stop stop you you're in the car at the moment. If you're listening to it in the car, just just stop listening and um, go go home and uh, go to uh, travisbryanlinville.com and uh, just just head over to his. Uh, um, this wet plate section, and you'll see these um, these fantastic portraits that we're talking about here. Yeah, well, actually, I... one of the, the portraits I'm scheduled um, in the next few weeks is a, a portrait of of Travis Linville. Um, Travis Linville is the reason that my website is Travis Brian Linville. Travis Linville is a uh, a musician uh, based in Oklahoma, and <laughs> and I learned about his existence when I tried to get my website and realized surprisingly I didn't think my name was a common one that Travis Linville had already purchased the Travis Linville website (laughs) and uh, we've been in touch on social media and so um, he's coming to Chicago uh, early in March and I'll be able to take a Travis Linville portrait (laughs) of Travis Linville that's brilliant (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I think thinking about what comment that uh, Simon made earlier about the modern nature of some of these images sort of thrown up against a really old process. 
And I do wonder if it's uh, certainly it's evident in that in the guy who I was referred to earlier, the one who's sort of lurching into the camera. There's almost an Instagram look about it, isn't it? And yeah. you know, I think that's the thing. It's almost like some of these are that one in particular could be just you know on your iPhone. You know what I mean? I don't mean that, that in any kind of disparaging way. It's just I think it's some people that that younger ones in particular perhaps are just used to having selfies and. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of different approach to having your portrait taken, perhaps, than there would have been 100 years ago. Some of them are more traditional. There's the sort of Indian guy there with a very striking beard, very um, sort of uh, very, uh, very uh, regal almost. Mm-hmm. And then, the, but the, the the girl with the sort of grungy hair with the hand, and, the, and the, obviously the young girl with the hands all around her face, and there's a real modern aesthetic to them. Along with a along with a uh, a bandage as well on the finger as well. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Travis, tell us a little bit about uh, for for those who haven't listened to any shows, particularly with Joseph on a bit, a bit about the process. Um, you know, d- define some terms, and you know, you've banded around at amber type and tin type, but uh, maybe you can just share with the listeners a, a little bit of detail about what those terminologies are and, and how you, uh, how, how you, how you make amber types and tin types. Sure. Yeah. So this was, um, uh, one of the earlier, um, practice forms of photography in, um, 1851. Um, this process came about and, um, and essentially it in- involves taking a sheet of metal or glass and, um, you have a, a, prepared solution of collodion, which is a, a mixture of, of raw collodion um, and uh, ether and grain alcohol and some, some iodides and bromides mixed together. And you, you pour this kind of viscous uh, chemical onto a flat plate. And as soon as the air hits it, it within a, several seconds, it gets sticky and tacky and sets up. And so once it's kind of set up, you put it down into a a light tight tank of silver nitrate and in the space of about three minutes the silver nitrate attaches to that collodion and when it's done you under safe light conditions you transfer that plate from that silver nitrate tank into a, a film holder made for wet plate and then you shoot it much like you would any any large format process it goes into the camera and then you expose it uh, based on its sensitivity the difference is that that Exposure has to be made while that pl- plate is still wet. So that time frame can can radically change depending on the time of year, the relative humidity, and, and things like that, the conditions. And so uh, you come back and you develop that plate again under safe light conditions, darkroom conditions, and develop with an iron-based developer, uh, ferrous sulfate developer typically. And I'm sure there are a lot of variations that I'm uh, still unaware of and um, – uh, as as you know, you know lots of great artists out there right now practicing this and have been for some time. And so I came in, I started uh, doing this uh, maybe 2015 uh, was when I first got into it. And already there were quite a few people uh, doing it, but I think it's grown exponentially in that time in terms of the degree of interest in, in the wet plate process and just the accessibility of it, the number of companies that are uh, producing materials and, and information that's easier to understand and follow making it more accessible so 
is the choice of either glass or um, trophy aluminium, um, is that purely personal choice or is there is it the same are you coating glass and all the plate or, or the aluminium with the same base collodion material or does d- d- does it differ Correct. yeah yeah the, the process is essentially the same it's just a different substrate and mm. so those te- tend to be the traditional standards either the mm. um um or i'd say the modern traditional standards um the aluminum plates or the the glass but People use different things. I've made, uh, in fact, maybe even some of these on the website are made on plexiglass, plexi types. And okay. um, that's nice because it's a more contemporary material. It has some advantages and disadvantages, but of course there's manipulations. You could do it uh, to it post-production. You know, you can melt it, drill into it, you know, all sorts of different things that the, the glass might not accommodate. Uh, people work on different uh, colors of glass to do these for their ambrotypes. And depending on how you develop uh, the glass plate versions, you can either develop it so it's more of a, a substantial negative that can be used to make duplicate prints, or you make it an ambrotype, which tends to be a bit thinner, and you back it with a dark material, and then it appears as a positive. And from a analog photography standpoint, uh, you know, it's a really great thing to produce because in one object you get something that's both the positive and the negative. Right? So you get the, the whole um, kind of history of that side of photography and that one object where if you hold it in front of a light background, it appears as a negative. If you hold that same object in front of a dark background, you get the positive. That's the same. Is that the same as a daguerreotype then? Cause that, they, they, or a cabinet, what they used to call cabinet prints where, they, where you have a dark background to view and you produce a one off, in, in terms of the, the presentation, they share some similarities, but the daguerreotype came earlier, and mm-hmm. um, and so the the collodion, the wet plate collodion, was uh, the innovation that followed that about 10 years later, 10 right. or 12 years later. So you mentioned ambrotype then. That, is, that, is that using a different set of sort of coating chemicals? So the ambrotype would be the the tintype process just done on glass instead oh, of Oh, I see. That is right. ambrotype. And then if you... Um, you know, make subtle changes to how you develop that glass product. It'll be either an ambrotype, which means it's a, meant to be a positive once you back it with a dark material, mm-hmm. or it's a glass negative, which it can still be backed and viewed, but people tend to develop it differently and use it uh, more as a negative if they intend to print it and make uh, prints from that. I just just want to apologise to Joseph Brunges. <laughs> I think he did explain that uh, to, yeah. to, to us, and we've we've Probably. forgotten. Forgotten. So, I've yes. forgotten. So, uh, I think this is the thing, isn't it? If you're not actually practicing it yourself, I mean, I read about all sorts of stuff that I then forget about. But once you start doing it, then you yeah. you, you remember, don't you? It's like you know, I've been working in the darkroom for years, so I remember this stuff. But if I was just reading about it, I'd have forgotten. <laughs> But as I did say, Simon, it's I can ask these. Uh, really, I'm asking these questions. I know, really, of course, I know, really. But for listeners who don't, you know, <laughs> no, it was it, it just gave. I, I must admit, I was I was a little bit vague on it myself. And then when uh, when Travis was just talking this through, I was like, you remembered. Oh yeah, yeah. He talked he yeah. talked about this, but he, he he did a bit of a history lesson. He and, did. Uh, went yeah. from one stage to the next, and uh, I, 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 and I think others probably have as well who we've had on, <laughs> and will continue to do so in the future, no doubt. 
Yes. Well, you know, we we spent a number of shows trying to work out the zone system for you. So now <laughs> we'll just we'll just plow on and keep asking guests <laughs> to explain wet plate work to us. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, when we go on a Dave Shrimpton workshop, or maybe after we see him at the at, at our gathering in in May. If we get some hands-on, Simon, it'll think into our thick I, skulls. I, I, I think we need to we need to see Dave before that. I mean, we've we've been uh, talking about getting Dave on the show now for a very long time, yep. um, and we just I think we need to. I, I'm not sure we can wait that long before we speak before we speak properly to Dave. <laughs> It'd be lovely to try and um, work out a time slot to go and see him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Did you want to look at some of these emails that have been lurking around? Well, we've got Travis. He can join in and answer some because we, we, we always like to get the guests involved in answering our questions. That will be a very good idea. Uh, Are you happy to get involved in a couple of emails, Travis? Absolutely. That's it. Um, I was just going to say, Travis, I, I, I did uh, send them to you earlier. Have you, have you got them on your system in front of you just so you can keep up with us excellent excellent so uh i've got one open already which as i've actually got a couple of tripod heads on my desk i thought perhaps we could start with that this is the one from hmm um i don't know how you well he's baz f he or she i'm not sure baz anyway um we'll just call it apologize baz i don't no, any more than your name. Simon and Andrew, thanks for the great podcast. Always informative and inspirational. Well, thank you very much. I know this isn't the holy trinity of film photography gear questions, which apparently is cameras, lenses, and film. But do you have any opinions? No, no opinions here, Baz. On tripods, heads for 4x5 cameras. I only started using a 4x5 about two years ago and just kept using the ball head on my tripod. I've thought about going to a three-way adjustable or maybe a geared head. So there would be handles and knobs for different axes. It's not easy to precisely level or otherwise adjust a 4.5 camera on a ball head. And it seems like I have to hold on to the camera base plate, move the head, which is probably not great for the camera. Any thoughts? Mm. Uh, Yeah, I have one or two. Um, Ben Reynolds, I think, was asking much the same question the other day looking for a sort of definitive answer but i'll throw my tuppence worth in for what it is it's probably not it's whatever works for you i would say but if you're going to be hiking up a mountain or working at the back of a car that may also influence your choice personally i've always just used three-way pan tilt heads i've got a humongous manfrotto which weighs probably more than the camera, Manfrotto 029 Mark II, which has a big oct... One, two, three, four, five... No, uh, one, two, three, four... (laughs) One, two, three, four, five, six-sided plate. What's a six-sided plate called? Hexagonal. Hexagonal plate, that's it, yeah. And that gives a very stable base, which linked to my big, heavy tripod is great as long as i'm not trying to carry it anywhere in addition to that head i have a couple of manfrotto 804 rc2 heads which have somewhat smaller manfrotto plates and they're 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 my workhorse ones i know other people use ball heads and other people use 
fancy geared heads for different adjustments. But, you know, I think how you're going to use your camera maybe inf- influence what sort of head you want to go for. And then maybe just go to a good shop that actually sells some. You know, like in the UK, you can go to Wex Photo in Norwich and try out a few and see what works or doesn't work for you. Hmm. I mean, I've, I think I think we have actually talked about this before on the show, but I've got a <laughs> probably. Um, uh, I think it's actually an American tripod. I think it's uh, elevator tripod. I think it is, um, and it's it's pretty old, and it's not the kind that has a. Uh, uh, you know, you're talking about that oxeg- octagonal, um, quick hexagonal. Hexagonal, sorry, yeah, not eight, six. Um, so the hexagonal uh, quick re- quick release plate. Um, mm. Mine doesn't have that. It's just the old-fashioned way of doing it. Uh, um, so the actual tripod. Uh, uh, I can't remember which one. Which one's the bush? Is that the? Mm. Anyway, you know what? I think I guess you know what I'm talking about. So uh, no um, idea. Yeah, um, so you, you you screw it in, and it's 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 mount it's it's permanently with the head of the tripod, and then okay. it will tilt forward, and it will tilt to the side, and then you can swing it around. But the what I like about it is it's got the the grips on it to tighten it are big, and that mm-hmm. means you can apply a great deal of force to it, and yeah. and really and any any tripod worth its salt, especially when you get heading towards large format, it's just got to you've got to get the thing truly stable and rigid. Um, and that really delivers on on that front. Yeah, so you can, you know, um, d- no matter which which large format camera I'm using, if it's got quite uh, um, tight tightly sprung, uh, where the where you put the film holders in there, um, you know that the position is is it's just not going to move, and it's just great having that that level of confidence. And the problem is with these things, you don't. <laughs> The lighter the tripod, the the less likely you're going to have that ultimate uh, rigidity. Mm. Um, well, uh, you can work with uh, people like um, Ben Horn. He uses he marches across the the plains of Africa. No, he doesn't. Where well, plains of Zion or those other national parks, and he has probably quite expensive carbon fiber tripods that are really light, but give him a tremendous amount of stability for his. Uh, Arcus twist camera. Yeah, but, I, I mean, I'm working out the back of a car, so I don't really yeah. care. I don't go hiking up hills. It's it's what's going to happen with the wind as well, isn't it? That's that's the other factor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about you, Travis? What uh, any thoughts about tripod heads or tripods? I see you've got a, a proper sexy wooden one in a photograph. You must be a proper I, photographer I with a wooden and, tripod. Um, well, the big sixteen by twenty cameras on one of the old century stands, but when I'm taking <laughs> out. Um, um, uh, smaller cameras, I should say. Uh, I mostly work with a pan tilt head, and so that's been just more product of what I have. But I've been really happy with it. Um, um, the ball heads, uh, as flexible as they are, and as much as I, I like those for other uses, I, I find that invariably the the camera at some point will I'll not be cl- paying close enough attention, and the camera will just want to flop on me. You know, mm. so. I always feel a bit more confident and I feel like there's a bit more stability with the pan tilt and maybe that's, uh, I don't know if that's accurate or just something that's kind of developed out of hobby, but uh, um, yeah. mostly that. I've also seen, has anybody had any uh, much experience working with the, the cubes? I've never worked with those before. Not me. Mm, nope. 
<laughs> Tell yeah. us more. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they're essentially just a, a tripod head that's a cube uh-huh. with geared movements in all three directions. And mm-hmm. um, I've never, I've never worked with them before. They look like something, you know, science fiction based, but they're that's supposed to be the... pretty effective. Oh, I've just, I've just uh, Arc the Swiss the, cube yeah. tripod head. They, that looks fantastic. Oh, <laughs> look at that. So I've immediately something called there's a little video with an Arca Swiss cube tripod head and he's turning these little wheels and it's moving all over the place. That looks very cute. Mm. No. Not I've, tried I've, one of those. I've, the I've, ultimate I've, tripod head. Yeah, I've, I've, got, ga- I've got gas for that now, but there you go. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that. Well, he's got a DSLR sitting on top of it, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Some, someone's got a Hasselblad on one there, so we're moving really? in the right direction. Yeah. But my advice, Baz, is to find a decent store. I don't know where you live or anything yeah. like that, but and go and try a few out. Yeah. Don't, you know, you you ask a question. The trouble is, you ask a question like that on any of the forums or in the, even in our lovely, friendly Facebook group. You'll get a dozen and one opinions, and and they're all right, you know, and they and they are probably all right, but you know, it's. You're the only one really who can... I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer necessarily. It's just whatever suits your style of photography, I would say. Okay, so um, any more words of wisdom from you on that, either of you? No. no. I, just, I just want a cube now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, Ian Fleming, he of the train-driving fame and... <laughs> proper train, uh, proper train. Pro- it's a proper train. Yeah. Ian Fleming... Um, oh, these are, he, he says happy new year well yeah happy new year to you too Ian it, Simon it, Andrew that's because we we didn't do emails last time did we so we're, no, we're a bit behind on this we are Simon Andrew really enjoyed the episode with Max from Intrepid he has really opened up LF to a wider market actually he has hasn't he and made 10 by 8 accessible Great shout-out for Dave Shrimpton, too. Yeah, so Dave's getting a lot of shout-outs. He, he's obviously paying us well. <laughs> Keep up the good work regards the interest. He, well, he was, it was just a fanboy email, really, wasn't it? So, yeah. uh, Ian, we don't know if we're going to see you at the large-format gathering, but we really hope we do. Fingers crossed. And I know that Ian did a uh, workshop with, with, with Dave as well. And, he did, uh, he really yes. That. Yes. I sp- in fact, I spoke to him on the phone about a few days before he was due to go down there, I think. Right. Yeah. So we have a couple more emails. Uh, well, a couple, three, one from Paul Barden and a couple from a friend of the show, Jeremy North. I think probably Simon best idea to hold those over. Um, so to the next uh, show, if we remember. Yes. <laughs> I think, I think we go, we, we, we do need to do that. So, uh, because we're, I think we're all running a little bit short of time now. Yep. So, uh, okay. So, well, in in that case, um, let us do some housekeeping first. Um, and there's two weeks worth of this, but I'll, I'll go through this pretty quickly. And that's to say that uh, thank you to those people that have donated to us uh, via coffee. Um, that's ko-fi.com. And if you do a search, you can find our podcast uh, page, which is large format photography podcast page, which just helps us with the bills. So uh, those people that 
have donated to us since the last time we mentioned this. Uh, goes back to the 22nd of January. Um, some have left messages, some haven't. And uh, Dan Tree has uh, donated to us without a message. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, Greg Opst um, says, uh, keep up the good work, guys. Um, and thanks for thanks for the interesting insightful guests and then he's done a hashtag of uh, believe in x-ray film um, thank <laughs> you very much greg <laughs> um then we've got uh, one from Sh shug pug uh, great podcast happy to support thank you very much shug pug um then we've got uh, one from J uh, james thorpe thank you james uh, christopher j may um wow. as uh, put in there uh insert witty large format related comment here um i think we'll let people's imagination do that because i can't think of anything better than what he's already put there so thank you very much uh, christopher um gretchen um thank you thank you gretchen um and you've said thanks for doing what you do well thank you for doing that too uh, appreciate that and then uh, finally uh oh, I, I don't even, i don't know how to even pronounce this but i'm going to give it a go sciolist um, and uh, he's donated us a coffee. So thank you very much, Sioist. Uh, and, and he's said, uh, enjoy. So thank you very much for, for those people who have supported us. Um, right. Now then, uh, let's quickly do some shout outs. Um, so, Travis, do you have any shout outs? Anybody you want to say hello to? Your mum? Oh, not, not this episode. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, what's, what's, uh, what's typical? Any other photographers, people that you want to point us towards or other listeners towards? Because the whole world listens to this podcast, you see. Yeah. So, uh, right, yeah. right. Um, off the top of my head, um, I might need a minute. <laughs> that's okay. Well, what this we'll do. This might be a good good time for a pause. And, uh... No, that's okay. Well, what we'll do, yeah. we'll, uh, well, I'll do shout outs for myself and, uh, and Andrew. And actually, I'm just going to also just say that. I, I ripped a photograph off your um, off your website. It's uh, a picture of yourself uh, with your two wonderful dogs, mm, and um, and it's gone down and, uh, rather well in the uh, the large format photography podcast Facebook group. Because um, I just put a picture of you. I didn't actually say who you were. I'm uh, just saying we're talking to this chap, and, um, oh, okay, and yeah. the, we've already had some comments. Uh, Dean Lestorio said they're what, photogenic dogs. Um, slightly jealous <laughs> because, because my dogs are zone zero and zone one. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's a uh, another one from Jacob Reynolds, and he goes, "Is this Travis Linville by any chance?" Um, mm. Had a great, great wet plate workshop mm. with him once at the University of Kentucky for for my alternative process. Oh, wonderful, class. wonderful, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then finally there was, uh, and I can't pronounce your name. I do apologise, but uh, it it just goes there. This is one awesome portrait, and it is. It's a great picture. That is so. It is. And uh, and you can see that portrait along with all the photographs that we've been talking about on Travis's website, which again is uh, just www.travisbrianlinville.com. Um, so don't forget the Brian, or else you'll get a musician. Um, so Andrew, any any quick shout outs? Yeah, a very quick one uh, to the well-known M from Emulsive. He posted into the Large Format Photography Podcast Facebook group. Uh, about a week ago um, he actually posted elsewhere but I asked him to share it into our group he's done a, a, a blog post on the person uh, forgive me uh, who was shooting 
wet plate work on the set of that new film, Little Women, you know, the one that yeah, was yeah. Oscar nominated. And on the set, um, they the stars had their picture taken with large format camera and wet plate work. And there's a whole article on there with photographs. Uh, tin types they were they were used to capture showers i don't know how you pronounce her name ronan laura dern timothy Chalmelay, emma watson her of uh what's it um uh, harry potter anyway um there's a whole article there if you i'm sure if you just go onto emulsive's website and type in eight by ten wet plate i think he was commenting that there just seems to be this massive upsurge in wet plate photography and it was quite interesting that it's been used on the film set to record images of actors yeah no, that, that's that, that's all good um i'll quickly do uh, my shout outs there uh, one is a shout out which i should have mentioned earlier when i talked about the photo walk in oxford and that's to nasa hamed uh, because uh, yes graham from the Sunday 16 podcast uh, did a lot of the organizing and publicizing but uh, nasa was a very big part of that as well so uh, it's mm-hmm. great to catch up with you again nasa um and you did a great job as well along with graham and a great group of people and uh, the other one is i just want to give a shout out to the homemade camera podcast again um, in particular anybody that's interested in um, uh, developing then do listen to episode 39 of the homemade camera podcast with Daniel Keating it's fascinating the guy just comes out with with formulas and how many how many grams you need to of it to, of a certain chemical and, and and so on to if you can't get hold of the one particular chemical uh, developing method in whichever part of the world you are you get in touch with daniel and he'll tell you what you can go down to the shops and use as a substitute it was just mind-blowing absolutely fantastic episode so uh do do listen to that um so they they might shout out and travis have you have you thought of anybody <laughs> well i would just say uh give a shout out and say hello to to all my my students of course at uh at Elgin community college and um i'm sure they're all tuning in i, I well i hope this is now part of the curriculum <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's uh, Brian, uh, Travis. Sorry. <laughs> Twice you called him Brian. I wasn't going to pick I, you up on it I the first time. That. Oh, I do apologise. Um, and um, and that's the other tra- Travis Linville's fault for for forcing you to, right. to use Brian. So uh, there, right. there you go. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's been um, great. So. No longer will you be known as Bob Matters, mate. <laughs> that's not so bad <laughs> yeah. right. and uh, so on, on that that's uh, that's pretty much it uh, we've mentioned it a few times we're in the um, we have a Facebook group called Large Format Photography Podcast we do have this new uh, Instagram uh, feed uh, so again Large Format Photography Podcast we, we haven't quite worked out what we're doing with that yet but we'll get round to it and we will post some uh, relevant information on there um, and you can always write into us by uh, send an email to largeformatphotographypodcast at gmail.com and we will eventually get round to, uh, to, mm. to reading that out um, and uh, finally our music is by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com and it's called Two Finger Johnny mm. um, and we really like that um, and that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this <laughs> uh, fortnight and a half uh, show. And um, it'll be great if you can join us again next time. So goodbye. Bye. Say goodbye, Travis. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to start rehearsing that. <laughs> <laughs>